to the FISM Learning Podcast. Uh, today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Michael Slattery. Uh, thanks, Gareth. Um, uh, so, as, as I said, I'm a, what's probably best described as a bit of a portfolio intensivist, uh, spread a bit of time between London and here. Um, I've all, uh, always had a keen interest in, in transfer medicine and the movement of the critically ill in a variety of different forms. Um, alongside my, my, my work in London, I've spent a significant amount of time um, setting up, creating um, and developing uh, Axe Cymru, which is the, the, the National Transfer Service for Wales, uh, and then dovetail that in with um, uh, roles as a Hems consultant working with the Emergency Medical Retrieval and Transfer Service, uh, which is a sort of sister organisation uh, to Axe Cymru. The first thing to get across is I think we need to look at where things started from when it comes to um, transfers. So. What would you describe as being the historical model of the transfer of a critically ill patient? So I think the two words that sort of resonate for me uh, in in the historical context of transfer medicine would be the enthusiastic amateur uh, and the ad hoc team. And when we look back historically, we'd have people who are used to delivering the care of uh, the critically ill, so that may be somebody from an anaesthesia background or intensive care in a, in a, a hospital setting, and then... Uh, in the middle of the night, uh, that pa- they, they'd be called down to the emergency department to look after a patient uh, that had, with, had acutely been injured or had developed an acute medical event that required transfer. And then we take the view where, well, they can do it in a hospital, so that must be just as straightforward as doing it in the back of a moving vehicle on blue lights in terrible weather. Um, and, and what we had was a selection of vehicles that the, the team may have never never necessarily seen before, a group of individuals that may have never worked together before, a set of equipment that they'd never seen before. I mean, historically, you, you imagine them all sort of getting a, a bowl of anaesthetic drugs, uh, getting into the back of a vehicle, um, and you sort of get a pat on the back, and uh, you hope for the best, and off you go. And over time, there's been a, a progressive acceptance that this is a suboptimal situation and there's a real, a real consistent uh, drive to slowly but surely professionalise transfer medicine. So uh, that region that start, started off by having transfer training being reflected in the Royal College of Anesthetists curriculum, uh, being recognised in the Faculty of Intensive Care curriculum, but also a, a consistent regional plan uh, to, to provide transfer training as a formalised pattern. So a, a regional transfer course that teaches you about your ambulance, try to have roughly the same type of kit from the same ventilator or the stretcher, um, and then uh, to do some sort of training where you familiarise yourself with that environment, that equipment, uh, and have at least some sort of common type of documentation and process to move the critically ill patient within your region. You said, you said about ad hoc teams, so... What would an ad hoc team typically look like? So, so an ad hoc team uh, traditionally would, would look like a, an anaesthetist uh, or, or an intensive care trainee, often uh, quite junior, um, uh, or an, a relatively junior intensive care, intensive care registrar. The assistant for that person may be an operating department practitioner because um, the assumption is that well, they help the anaesthetist in theatre, so therefore they're the most appropriate person to help the theatre, uh, the anaesthetist in a non-theatre environment. And you know, these are all skilled individuals. Um, but what 
there may not necessarily be is that that understanding of the level of skill of those individual practitioners so we've got the the, the physician we've got the uh, the, the um, assistant and then we obviously have the third member of the team uh, for lack of a better phrase is the driver um, now that may well be um, a paramedic uh, or more often than not it will be a, a relatively um, a junior sort of technician level member of staff uh, that's not used to managing the critically ill that will drive the vehicle and if you're lucky uh, there may be a second crew member that would sit in the back to support the assistant and the doctor in a setting where they're not normally familiar with with managing those the, the, that patient to the back of the ambulance yeah and i guess the the hospital staff are very unlikely to have probably even seen the back of an ambulance deliberately yes before they actually set foot in one to suddenly start doing a transfer with people who could be the sickest, sickest person in that hospital who's about to leave to a very uncontrolled um, environment one that's incredibly unfamiliar and sort of and potentially quite hostile to the to that team that have now decided to step in the, the back of the ambulance with it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if you were to look at a perfect storm for a, a critical incident or a, an episode of suboptimal patient outcome, um, if you throw all of these into a melting pot, in theory, um, that's what you'd imagine would happen. Mm. Yet amazingly, uh, up until this point, a large number of patients were, uh, were, were transferred, sorry, um, without what we think are significant events. And, we're, uh, and I guess that's important because if you don't look for it and you don't measure it, you won't know. Why are dedicated critical care transfer services important? And I suppose the follow-up question to that is, why are they now what seems to be the very in-vogue thing for critical care networks to be, to be establishing? They're important because, as you've alluded to previously, the historical context that we find ourselves was, was not an ideal setup for patient care. And we know that from many specialties, you know, both within anaesthesia and critical care and HEMS practice, that if you have a team that does a lot of things on a frequent basis of the same type of thing, be it from vascular surgery to, 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 to critical care, um, to um, even things like day case anaesthesia, you, by having a cohort of people that are invested um, with, a, with a common training, work together on a regular basis um, and, and with investment in an infrastructure we know that that can be leads to better outcomes and the, the natural translation of that is is to provide that same what I would describe as almost like a hems team mentality to a, to a transfer team because the expectation is that that would um, produce better outcomes uh, in terms of clinical care but by having dedicated services, it allows you to professionalise the entire chain of care that the patient receives. So it's not just about the transfer. And we can, you start off with a team that knows what it's doing and has the right tools to do its job well. Um, and then you, then you look at how that process of care from the point of referral to definitive care is optimised. And also to look at what that definitive care, after it's been completed, how we get that patient back close to home to allow flow through the system so that we can get people to specialist care but to also get them home in a timely fashion because that in a way allows us to have equity for all patients because things are always moving forward. Do you think Covid and the necessary movement that was required to manage the capacity within the system is one of the driving forces behind this sort of what feels like quite a rapid establishment of these, these teams? Yeah, so I think certainly within NHS Wales, um, there was significant investment 
uh, in the National Transfer Service. So we received our commissioning uh, prior to the COVID pandemic. Um, and actually, there are a lot. There's a lot of work with NHS England prior to the COVID pandemic. Um, to, to and some services did begin to have that pro primordial beginnings, but what what it did do is act as a catalyst out of absolute operational necessity, um, because um, you know you, some the, the the nature of the COVID pandemic meant that so, some centres were better resourced than others, and also the the geographical variation that occurred is some days one unit would be, would be struggling and another day that other unit would, would be would be better and that concept of mutual aid uh, and managing uh, beds on an almost sort of like federal national basis or regional basis was 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 really essential to, to get through that pandemic it also meant that we needed to, uh, to to develop a robust method of moving patients between hospitals largely because some of the financial rules around um, the procurement of equipment um, were sort of dissolved around that meant that we were able to get together the necessary infrastructure to transfer patients. So, along, uh, so, so alongside that was the, the necessity to move patients that we traditionally would have never moved. Mm. So, you know, we wouldn't be put, put in someone in the back of an ambulance on 80-90% oxygen uh, on CPAP or, or intubated in a prone position in some of the, some, in some, some of the ad hoc services. If we didn't, they'd die where they were, and I think that that really pushed forward the the capability of the art of the possible in terms of trying to get people from A to B and an acceptance of risk that we wouldn't normally necessarily do. I think what was what's really useful in the wake of the pandemic is that it, it has changed the way that we as units work uh, in the individual silos. The, you know, the, the, the silo mentality is very much gone. Uh, because when you're having a bad day, you need your, your friendly neighbourhood intensive care unit to help you out. And, and, and when they're having a bad day, you'll remember they helped you and they help you back. And I think that's, that, I think that's absolutely uh, fundamental to, to managing huge cohorts of patients. And I suspect every, every sort of winter or flu season or whichever, we'll see, hopefully to a much lesser degree, but some of the similar behaviours. You mentioned about bringing a sort of a hem style practice into into transfer but do you think that there's the potential for a misconception to see transfer as as bordering on pre-hospital or do you think or do you think that actually the line should be blurred between the two of them it's a very good it's a very good question um and and as someone that sits in with their feet in both camps mm. i think it's, it's it's a really interesting there are definitely um, similarities or uh, mutually beneficial deliverables between both things. So you have a, a team of people um, that work together on a regular basis, that have prepared kit, um, have uh, a familiarity with a platform. So that might be a helicopter, an RRV, or an ambulance. But they, but you know, when when you work a hem shift, you absolutely know your kit um, and you know what drugs you carry and you have a robust process of SOPs um, as well as having um, a, a, a robust um, governance process about adverse events and things. So I, so I think that the, the, the clinical mindset about knowing a kit, everyone having specific roles, using checklists, having uh, governance and, a, and a, a kit husbandry that's second to none um, is beneficial to both things, both, both HEMS and transfer medicine. But this, the transfer of a patient, so if I go to a patient that's been in a part of a polytrauma 
um, that we find on on rail tracks, uh, and we you know we scoop them up, um, you know, uh, give them blood, intubate them, fly them to an MTC. If I get there and there's a a stone uh, that's caught on between the stone that's damaged the skin at the back and has caused a bit of pressure uh, necrosis or uh, at the skin or, or pressure area, that is accepted as not ideal but in the set of circumstances we find ourselves that's where we are if i'm doing a transfer and that patient has a skin flap or a skin break or pressure area as a consequence consequence of the transfer that is absolutely not acceptable because the trans the standard is different because the focus is different controversially the patient group is very different as well so you're not taking an undifferentiated patient that you're trying to provide some basic life-saving interventions to um, what you're, you're you're trying to do is to move a critically ill patient, which may have a huge spectrum of complexity from those patients that are you know are, are, have got profound cardiovascular failure and multiple agents um, to those patients who are profoundly hypoxic to those patients that are delirious and have got tracheostomy and have got problematic um, uh, sedation etc. So whilst the principles and governance and high performance team elements are, are really translatable. The patient groups that you deal with are very, very different. But if you have a Venn diagram of HEMS and transfer, there is this little lip in the middle called time critical transfer, where actually the risk benefit or the, the, the pace of what needs to be achieved can be slightly more flexible around clinical interventions to get the patient to definitive care. And I think that's the overlap um, and is the competing space between between HEMS practice and, and transfer medicine. This is about a patient getting to the place they need to go for the thing they need. And it, in many ways, it just doesn't matter who does it as long as it's the right people doing it for the right patient at the right time in the right way to the right place. Yeah, and I think that that's the... the, the the lived experience of 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 Ax Cymru working with our MRTS colleagues is that that what we essentially do is work in synergy with MRTS so that um, it it's that principle of only do what only you can do and I think that if there's a patient that's suitable to be transferred by uh, Ax because they have a more intensive care flavour or is within the skill set of the team that we what we provide. Um, it, then, then that's 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 equally as acceptable as sending a hems team, and we just need to take a you know basic, uh, a pragmatic approach to that, as you say, right team, right place, right time. The standard of care that a patient is re- receiving on an intensive care unit is incredibly involved, incredibly detailed, and do you think that we should be taking those same standards and applying them to the journey that we're then taking the patient on in an ambulance? So I think. Um, f- the, the key thing, from my perspective, uh, is that uh, the, 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 the fundamental principle on which we do um, our model care within Axe Cymru is that the, the transfer, where previously it may have been a step down of care, at the absolute minimum, it needs to be a lateral transfer of care. So they receive the same care uh, during transfer that they would receive on the intensive care unit or hopefully a, a slightly higher standard of care because you go to a one-to-one ratio with a practitioner, a doctor, and the patient. Now, the challenge that we we have is that delivering all of those interventions is easily done in an intensive care unit with space and resource and equipment. I think 
for the most part, when we've designed our clinical model, we've looked at things like, for example, our ventilators able to ventilate patients that are extremely sick to the same standard you'd see within a hospital. Um, our hemodynamic monitoring is what you can achieve at the bed space. And, and whilst we, we, don't, we don't currently do cardiac output monitoring, it's something that the service is looking into to try to understand how far we can push those similarities. From a, a nursing intervention, from a nutrition pressure care, um, perspective if they need antibiotics if they need tracheostomy suction if they're having a weaning plan uh, then what we would would aspire to do is to deliver that weaning plan as they would do in hospitals if they would do to have a speaking valve we'd put them on the passing move valve, we'd put their cuff down and we'd do that in transfer now is that especially relevant because we're in wheels and I, the reason I say that is that well actually if the transfer is only 40 minutes or an hour are you overcomplicating a situation but when we travel huge distances. Some of our job cycles are, are, you know, four hours on the back of an ambulance. Then actually, those interventions, you know, it, it's 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 a quarter of a day. Um, mm -hmm. it's it's half an ITU nursing shift. Um, and so therefore, we should aspire to, to deliver those interventions, and and that requires planning. It requires infrastructure. It requires equipment. But I think if you give, if you get the right people in the back of the vehicle, with the patient then there's no reason why that care can't be delivered with appropriate planning. What is the model of Avaxcom really appreciating that there's sort of various different prongs to that, to that model? Um, so the model of Avaxcomry is you have a team of three plus one um, is the way to look at it. So we've got um, a retrieval and transfer physician uh, that's um, a registrar level and above. Um, many of our um, physicians are a consultant level within intensive care and anesthesia. Um, we have a, a retrieval and transfer practitioner. Uh, so these are experienced uh, ITU nurses. Um, and we have a paramedic. So it's the t key term here is practitioner um, because it's about the individual and their background rather than their, their pre-ACTS title, should we say. Uh, and then we have a critical care transfer assistant um, who is... Um, uh, predominantly from a, a blue light background um, but they're not a vehicle driver uh, and we're very keen to do that they're very much a blend between that healthcare support worker role so that, that supports on the ward and delivers clinical care um, and also um, uh, the blue light driving and what we uh, and what we find with this model of three is that we've got a little bit of pre-hospital experience at the back of an ambulance and driving in the outside world is is very much home to the CCTAs um, uh, and then you've obviously got the, the ITU team in the back uh, of, of the vehicle. But the most important part of, of all of this is probably um, the, the, the ITU coordinator. So the ACTS coordinator um, is one of the jobbing, clinically uh, active members of the retrieval and transfer practitioner team. And what they're responsible for is they, they spend about a third of their time performing the coordination role, um, where they uh, will every day link in with the network, uh, so the Welsh Critical Care Network, we'll share the national SIPDREP call, and then we'll receive referrals from all over Wales, uh, we'll triage them, interrogate them, um, allocate the appropriate team to transfer the patient uh, in, in association with our, our um, critical care uh, colleagues that support the air desk in, in, in EMRTS. Um, and uh, then they will also support the resuscitation of the patients um, and pre preparations patients prior to transfer. Um, we'll support the team. So if there is a, 
adverse event or a logistical problem, they'll support the team as we as you as as they progress on the transfer to offload them and bring other resources in. So they've got a real key focus in acting as a central negotiator of care for that patient to allow the seamless referral tasking transfer but also really important is the follow-up of that patient the day after so that we touch base so we let the clinical team know we see if there's any early lessons learned uh, and, and then obviously support the audit process around that um, and it's that seamless coordination of this process is probably the most valuable part because if you imagine you're a clinician at the full face and you're managing a sick patient what you want is that single point of contact where you basically make a make a telephone call give your patients details um, and then from that point all of the onward movement and information that transfers all is all sorted out for you until that you get a phone call where you say the team is x number of minutes away um, uh, and that the you know we're gonna we're gonna transfer a patient in a timely fashion, but the coordinate will also link in with the bedside nurse to make sure that the, the you know the appropriate sedation has been prepared, has checked that the pre arrival checklist has occurred. So, it's it's almost more important than the clinical care of the patient on the ground because without the coordinator, because we have more than one team operating at once, it, they they keep that poetry in motion. The the coordinator role, so to my understanding, is something that's quite unique to to Alex Cymru. Yeah, as well, isn't it? Do you think that that coordination role is something which is vital to the service, such that actually other transfer services probably ought to be seeing that as a as an ambition for them to be developing? So it's interesting. I think um, many of the transfer services utilise a duty retrieval consultant to triage some of the calls. In Acts, we chose to utilise uh, practitioners. We spent a lot of time training our coordinators and, and in a way there's something really useful about an ITU nurse talking mm. to another ITU nurse about an ITU patient. There's, there's, a, there's a real un- shared understanding that occurs. Um, and I think the challenge uh, with us was to very much empower our coordinators uh, with you know, the knowledge experience, the, you know, the, the, the problem-based learning that we, we develop as part of our induction programmes. Um, so that they've got the tools to, 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 to ask the right questions. Because we, we are supported by um, EMRTS as an organisation, they have a top cover consultant, and there's an option to reach back to that individual, so a consultant that's, that's not necessarily from an intensive care background, but you know, is a consultant that's got experience in transferring um, uh, you know, patients in a HEMS or a transfer and retrieval setting. Um, but... The, 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 the reality of the situation is, is actually they reach back uh, very, very infrequently and that's as a consequence of the fact that they're confident in what they do. They, they can get the support of the duty team, etc. And, and as time goes on, our utilisation of top cover consultants is, is less and less and that's as we mature as a service. Um, so I think having a two-tier approach is probably the, the, the best. And I suppose there's the, there's the unseen benefit of having a person who is experienced in the logistical and organisational aspects that the top cover consultant or a duty intensive care consultant covering transfer service on that particular day just won't be if your if your ambulance breaks down or catches fire or you know or if there's a if there's a, an issue and you suddenly have to divert to somewhere what you have is you have somewhere where somebody who their job is to pick up the phone and to be organising these things for you so a the duty team transferring the patient can focus on just the clinical care um, but the if it was, say, a, a consultant, they're not having to worry about 
I have no idea about dealing with all of this stuff because what you've got is in the coordinator an individual where they have that experience, that exposure and probably have got links with different places that the doctors really just wouldn't we wouldn't create those links organically in the same way that an ITU nurse say um, would. Do you think that's sort of fair? Yeah, I think I think I think, I think that, that <coughs> it's very different. So all of the doctors that work for the service, no one does transfer medicine or HEMS, for example, mm-hmm. full time. Everyone drops into it for a number of sessions. That may be three or four days a month, um, uh, and as a consequence, you're always going to be less affairs you describe with the the logistics and relationships. If this is your day in day out, full time job of transferring the critically ill, you you build those relationships and and the 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 real benefit is you, when the team is on the ground and we've had our fair share of logistical more than clinical incidents. Um, the 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 person that's supporting you two days before was sat in the same seat that you're sat in. Mm-hmm. So when they look around, they know that that cupboard has got that kit in, the drug bag has got this, or actually that stretcher wheel is always a little bit dodgy and it's been reported. And it's that organic, nuanced understanding of the environment that they're working re- really does provide support for the guys delivering the care. Um, but it's that, as you say, that implicit understanding of, of the whole environment. And I think that's part of that national process of professionalizing transfer medicine by turning in from an ad hoc specialty that you do to a full-time occupation you'd touched upon sort of an induction process for Fax Cymru and upon sort of training so what does the training within within transfer medicine so sort of, I suppose as well what does it look like and what do you think can be provided it's it's interesting um I think that there's there's le- different levels. So there's the uh, basic transfer training, which is the, the minimum standard that someone need, needs to undertake. And I think that the real challenge of delivering this moving forward is that um, most transfers are being taken by professionalised teams and that's occurring in regions. Um, and and trying to create enough space for those people to get enough experience. You have, so you have the, the occasional person that needs to have some understanding of transfer but is not going to have a significant commitment to it. But it's part of their job that in the middle of the night, if there's no one else to do it, it still needs to be better than what it was, but it's not going to be the full option. And then there's that gradient, I suppose, between that and the advanced practice in transfer and retrieval medicine. And that will look like different for different staff groups. So um, within within Axe Cymru, for example, we, we have a, a, a residential induction program, which that's training in the equipment, the kit, but to train for those things which are extremely rare, so that when they do happen, it's not the first time they're thinking about or, or attempting to do, to do that. Uh, and then alongside that induction programme, there's the, the ongoing mentorship as they start the service with people who are existing within the service. Uh, and then to support that from a, from a physician perspective, there would be um, additional time spent in transfer medicine within the service, but alongside anaesthetic or intensive care training with the option of undertaking a specialist study year within transfer and retrieval medicine and dedicating specific time to becoming an expert in that. But also having accreditation to associate with that. So sitting something like the, the, the Diploma in Retrieval and Transfer Medicine as a sort of professional badge of honour to, to demonstrate that you've got the experience, uh, practical experience, uh, theoretical knowledge and understanding of, not, of, of transfer medicine as a wider piece. 
and then if we look at the practitioners, that, that journey is incredibly exciting because we've now got a group of patients who are, you know, really can be looked after by a practitioner from a number of different backgrounds that again has the mentorship, goes to the induction process, but has a portfolio of domains that are skills essential to managing the critically ill that range from being familiar to being able to perform practical procedures almost to the point of, of having an almost advanced critical care practitioner in the context of retrieval. So mm. in, in very basic terms, an ACCP in the back of a van. <laughs> now, I, I understand that that's a bit of a strange thing because ACCPs are already doing transfers, but that's part of a wider role, whereas mm. the retrieval and transfer practitioner is an expert in a very specific area of and it's a very specific environment, but but not just from the clinical care, but the point of referral, optimization, the transfer itself, the debrief of critical incidents, and then the audit and research and mm-hmm. governance that's associated with that. You know, how do you accredit them? But we're working with with Bangor University to get a, an MSc in 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 advanced practice in retrieval and transfer medicine, and so our practitioners will be educated to master's level. From an educational perspective, so they've got that level several working, plus they've got the ongoing training and portfolio, and on on top of that, um, they'll have an associated clinical mentor. So that hopefully at the end of it, we will have a, an expert practitioner and advanced practice role in transfer and retrieval, to the point that actually, maybe we don't need doctors for all transfers, um, and actually for a significant chunk of of transfer medicine with appropriate triaging and assessment and support that a significant cadre of patients can be moved can be removed by practitioners. This may completely flip the model and you have your expert advanced RTP who's able to do this and actually the doctor may be the person with far less experience and probably actually in the services becoming the RTPs have got far more experience in in that environment in that role in the in the practice than actually than some of the doctors do yeah and i think i think that that i think that's maybe the space that we are in now Mm. um so we've got uh um, but actually you know we're coming up to being two years old most of our transfer practitioners have been in the service since the beginning uh you know we we joke about a few of them being centurions having completed a hundred transfers with the service um, and they've got a wealth of experience, not only in terms of the sim, the training, um, and the practical conduct transfer. Um, and for me, as 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 the, as the clinical lead, what I've I've seen is that the first transfer course, uh, the induction course, was delivered by myself, um, the, the 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 lead practitioner at the time, and also um, a lot of my HEMS colleagues and and other people interested in transfer training historically has now transitioned to a, a course where we review the content of it, we you know, we we tweak it, but actually the 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 meat and potatoes of it is delivered by our existing fellows or previous fellows, our substantive consultant staff. But a huge part of it is delivered by the practitioners because actually they are the people that have got the absolute credibility in delivering that role uh, and delivering the care to those patients. And outside the service we now provide and support regional transfer training by sending acts teams to support the regional training that exists um, so so I think as time goes on the just like when you go on to ITU as being a really junior SHO 
and the sort of patient, the patient's quite sick, and you think you know what what to do, and you, you turn to the nurse and you sort of say, "Well, what do we normally do here?" <laughs> and 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 the, and the, and the nurse will say, "Well, we normally," do, and, and and it's that piece where they can support the the physician that's unfamiliar or the doctor that's, mm. that's struggling, or in the rare occasion where we have sickness and shortfalls in our staffing, actually that our practitioner and our um, uh, CCTA are able to support, I hate the phrase, but a hospital doctor transferring transferring the patient mm. because th- that what the doctor is is okay with is the intensive care medicine or the anesthesia, but what they're not familiar with is the operational delivery of that high quality care on the move in transit. Mm. Uh, and they're not experts in our kit, whereas our staff absolutely are. Mm. Uh, and when the, if when, God forbid, something goes wrong, they know who to call, how to do it, where to find that problem, mm. all in a timely fashion, uh, and you know can support that physician um, in difficulty yeah. uh, in, in that setting. And, that, and that's something that they should be very proud of, and, and, and I am as a, as, a, as a clinical lead. Fantastic. I mean, as I say, it sounds like if you were, if you were a you know, paramedic, ODP, nurse, and sort of thinking about where could you go to 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 hone your skills in a certain area more that it sounds like an ideal role for somebody looking to sort of to to really become more expert in an aspect of of critical care med- medicine that up until now probably hasn't had the spotlight on it in a way that it that it now does yeah i mean i think part of the catalyst as we talked about earlier is about covid but but the reality is is that that regionalization of specialist services is an absolute necessity in a way in that we look at uh, times of austerity within the NHS and the cohort effect of doing high volume working in different areas um, and you know gone are the days where the district general on your hospital the district general hospital down the road can do your emergency vascular surgery do your neurosurgery and you know, do your bypass um, and now actually we recognize specialist centers and mm. an, an integrated effective efficient and safe transfer system is absolutely essential to getting patients to where they need to be and home in a timely fashion and, and allowing equity of access of everybody of access to, to, to those things. And I think it's a combination of, of, of that necessity, but also we forget that technology is moving on. Um, ventilators are getting smaller, monitors are getting better, pumps are getting better. And, and it's that, that combination of, of, of the necessity, the, the, the post-COVID in, uh, uh, demonstration of of, of, of what we need in ICU, uh, of how we can strategically manage ICU beds uh, um, and uh, that's where we find ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think the limitations of transfer medicine are? It's a very good question. Um, I think that the um, enemy of progress in transfer medicine is dogma and historical context. And the, the, those fateful words, always oh, too sick to transfer. <laughs> and that's really interesting because actually there are some signals and some of the sort of data that we're looking at is that actually patients will get better with the transfer team. That with the things that we're looking at in the service and it was all unpublished, but a signal around mechanical power in terms of ventilation strategy, the amount of sedation people are on when they get to the other end of the transfer. Um, the uh, amount of vasopressor dose that they're receiving. They're, they're all just signals, nothing concrete. 
Um, but I think when we assume that transfer is a dangerous intervention, then we're on the back foot already. Mm. And I think what our role as transfer services, or the, 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 the thing that's incumbent upon us, is to demonstrate that at least transfer medicine, to move from a position of, of, of assuming it's dangerous to a position of equipoise, where, well, maybe it is dangerous, maybe it's not dangerous. And I, I think very clearly that if you provide appropriate training, appropriate environment, the, the required logistics, and that seamless coordination, transferring up, you can transfer almost any patient. Um, you know, we've done some incredible transfers of patients with on a huge, you know, APRV paralyzed for four hours to, to ECMO centers because of the challenges around their, their, the amount of ECMO referrals. We've also um, uh, transferred a patient with uh, a differential, differential lung ventilation, so, we, so with uh, two different endotracheal tubes within the bronchial tree, uh, with two separate ventilators. Um, and, and we've done that for you know two three hours again to get to a respiratory failure center so we can undergo. Um, and I think that if you can demonstrate you can do those things say um, safely, then transferring that patient acutely and well, then transferring the complex patient on ICU that's just on a lot of medicines mm. um, or was a bit wobbly uh, is is absolutely possible. Yeah, I think it's the it's almost the the oxymoron of of transfers, isn't it that. The patient where somebody says, oh, they're too sick to transfer, you're then waiting for a window of stability to transfer that patient. But you may also miss the window, window for inter inter intervention. As well. You talked about the, the, the centralisation of, of care necessitating more transfers of people to areas for specialist interventions. But then you also mentioned the, the transfer back again, which seems to me like it's probably a, an unrealised, unmet um, need within the within the service is that where a professionalised established transfer service can really fill that gap and as you'd said in the past actually really establish that flow through the system. Yeah, so th so there's there's two models that you can sort of operate. Uh, one which is uh, you wait until the patient stays within the specialist centre and and for certain things they may be you know spinal rehabilitation some of the neuro neuro rehabilitation settings where that's absolutely essential. Um, and that patient gets to the point where they can be transferred by a lower level of care, so a practitioner um, that could be um, from the ambulance service with a, 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 a sort of, you know, urgent care type model, um, which is quite prolonged, quite, as expe quite, quite expensive in terms of ITU days. And, and certainly if you're cross-charging between specialist institutions and district general hospitals, there's a financial imperative to that. But probably most importantly is that going in and and getting out in a timely fashion is key um, it, it, because it, uh, it reduces the number of bed days it re reduces the number of bed days that are taken up in specialist care making spaces we've talked about um, but the, the, the transferring back of that capacity patient or repatriation patient in many ways is really really important because if you apply the same principles of high quality critical care by design and that critical care is a process, not a location. If that patient needs to have, as we've discussed previously, trachymarch trials, uh, received um, periods of cuff down to, to restore bulbar and glottis, glottic rehabilitation, it, it means that you can, that when that patient gets transferred by Act Cymru, we would really hope that they don't lose a day so where traditionally you go in and you get told to 
deeply sedate them and deeply paralyze them, get control, take over control. But actually, the knock-on effect is that that patient may get more delirium, they may go into vasopressors. And, and we all know that when we drop patients off in units, that takes a period of time where the, you're going to get familiar with that patient, get comfortable with their, their background, you know, is that the physiology, what matches the, matches the handover, um, you know, the confidence in, to have the confidence to be happy to desedate and to start that patient back on their rehabilitation process. Uh, and by allowing us to do the, 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 the same level of care in transit, means that, that the patient doesn't take a step back as a consequence of it. And, and that ability to can deliver that rehabilitation or, or, or ongoing rehabilitation weaning or de-intensifying critical illness and transfer is equally as important as being able to take the really sick patient the other end. And I think that that's the bit that's not really appreciated because they may be seen as less sexy or less interesting transfers. But just because they're less, less you know... Cliff edge, cliff edge stuff. It doesn't mean that they're less. They're no, they're no less important, are they? Though? Absolutely, in many ways, more important mm. because uh, we, you know, that a patient that's a rehabilitation patient in ICU often has quite a lot of care needs, quite a lot of physiotherapy needs, quite a lot of nutritional needs that to, to, to support that. Um, and I think that's quite that's quite difficult. Um, that, but by having that, the, to do that well requires a lot of attention to detail, and that patient is equally as important as a patient that's, that's having that primary injury because that patient moving out facilitates that patient getting in, and that circle of care or process of care from coming off your motorbike in a field to the HEMS consultant RSI and you to you getting your polytrauma transfer to going to, to, to from the trauma unit to the trauma centre to being repatriated home. Is, is a continuum and any break in that chain like the chain survival in the context of ALS has, has further effects down, downstream. What to you do you see the future of transfer medicine I suppose both within a, a, whale, a Wales and a network setting but maybe on a, on a larger scale as well? So, so I think um, the, the two areas that probably for me are the important in the, in the, the future of transfer medicine is the rise of the practitioner um, and the, the extended scope of practice around what a person with appropriate skills experience can achieve. And, and actually, you know, we already know that ACCPs do selected level three transfers. Um, uh, and that currently is the remit of the, of the physician uh, with appropriate airway skills. Um, but actually, we, I, I don't see why with an appropriate background in terms of, of education experience theoretical knowledge understanding of pharmacology physiology but also the practical skills around airway that we know that we can train non-medical people to do airway interventions safely uh, in, in fixed settings so why can't we have practitioner-led level three transfers as a routine thing for a subgroup of patients so i think that's a really interesting area is that you know how far can we take the practitioner model? What can we get them to do? You know, we know that we can do independent prescribing, they can administer blood safely, they can it's to provide a meaningful clinical interventions from central line insertion to thoracostomy. Um, but how far can we how far can we push that? Another real key piece of transfer medicine is epitomizing the, the concept that it is a process, not a location. And actually by being comfortable and reassuring people that transfer medicine is safe by providing the right infrastructure team, logistics and operational side of things. 
that we can expand what we understand as networks. So shock is a great example. Um, you know, the, the, there are a very small number of centers in the UK that deliver mechanical support. There are many patients that are in the earliest stages of, 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 of um, the sky scoring of cardiogenic shock, for example. Um, we're victim previously of what I would describe as the Goldilocks phenomenon. So they're not sick enough or they're too sick. And there's an appetite in these centers for transferring, for having those patients. So what, by reassuring people that transfer medicine is not as dangerous and we can safely deliver these patients and we can provide a step up in care or a consistent degree of, of care during tra transit, can we get more patients access to the specialist centers? By, by, by scaling the system we talk about where we trans can transfer patients to these specialist centers quite easily, um, seamlessly and safely, uh, and also transfer those patients out. So I think demonstrating that transfer medicine is safe, how do we do that? Well, that's difficult because actually when we talk about a good transfer, um, you know, when I was a, an SHO, patient got to the other end and didn't die. <laughs> um, and that's a solid endpoint, but probably not particularly robust in terms of understanding the more nuanced parts of it. So I think um, what, uh, what we need to look at is well, how do we demonstrate that these transfers are good, effective and safe? Obviously mortality. Um, looking at the data as and, and working together collaboratively between all of the different transfer organizations within the UK and internationally to share a common data set. I think each individual region will innovate, innovate and provide region, uh, solutions for their individual region um, based on, on the needs, but working together collaboratively to share data sets to look at things like operational uh, complications, uh, uh, organizational uh, um, logistical complications or clinical clinical co uh, complications and we're looking at some of this as part of our service evaluation and again unpublished work but our our, our uh, you know, gross complication rate is 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 a, th a third or, or less of previously published published data sets so so I think we, the signal is coming um, but but we need strength in numbers and, and we need to have a much bigger data set to, to demonstrate that and that, that's important. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's about people trying to look at that sort of art of the possible in that if someone says to you, this patient's too sick to transfer, I think at Axe Camry we see that as a challenge, not, not out of you know, blazing arrogance, but actually to look at and try to understand why that patient can't be transferred and is it something that's modifiable by us clinically, operationally, logistically, so that if we can't do that patient, when that problem comes up next time, we've thought about it and we're good to go. And I, as long as you have that as, a, as, a, as an underlying principle uh, and that hunger to try and push the envelope, I think that's, that's, that, that's definitely the space that we want to be in. And again, it's, it's conceptualising intensive care as being a longitudinal process rather than a specific place and actually you just need to create the intensive care wherever you are mm. and in a hems team that's a car park in a hospital it's in a hospital and in transfer setting it's the back of an ambulance or the back of a of an aircraft and and, and it can be done and we are doing it and we will continue to do it, do it and it should only get better with time but 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 collecting the data asking research questions and collaborating are the only way that we're able to robustly demonstrate what is a firm belief that transfer medicine isn't dangerous? Yeah, yeah. If um, if people listen to this and thought, you know, what Axe Cymru sounds like a, a thing I want to find out more about, what would you, what would you say to them? 
speak to us. Um, we're, 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 a very, we're a very welcoming organisation. Um, I think Wales, you know, there are pros and cons to everything. Um, uh, I think that we have a, a service of two different experiences, both north and south, um, both regional but equally one service, and I think that's important. I think, you know, obviously get in touch. Um, I'm happy to provide my email address, get in touch with myself directly. I'm always happy to chat about transfer medicine and try and recruit another uh, person into the fold. Um, but 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 think about it. Speak to your, your local um, uh, transfer um, clinical leader, transfer teams. Um, have a chat with your um, college tutors or faculty tutors, uh, and then obviously look on the Fickham website for 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 the for the SSY uh, module. Um, but that's a standalone piece to to, to profession, help you professionalise your practice of a transfer transfer medicine. Um, but just talk to people because I hope to th- well I'd, I'd like to think that there are people as equally as enthusiastic about transmedicine as there are as, as, as me in, in different regions um, so yeah speak to people ask questions uh, but come and try it because it's absolutely not what you think it will be yeah great um, and I suppose uh, better late than ever full disclosure I, I am currently doing my SSY with with Axe Cymru in, um, in transfer in, in transfer medicine um, so yeah. um, well look Mike thank you very much for, um, for giving me your giving me your time um, this evening before we finish is is there anything that you'd you'd like to say as any as any closing remarks? I mean, I, I, mean, I think um, it's a brave new world. I think that it's an exciting time to get involved in something, uh, and I think that if you're looking for someone to something to call to improve uh, your CV, CV or look at research or do some data analysis, now is absolutely the time because the the book of transfer medicine is not yet written, um, and I think if you're a trainee, just get just just get involved, um, even something something locally um, because there are lots of things that are happening that um, can fit into be so what seems quite small can fit into a much much bigger piece um, and I guess the other thing is that don't worry um, there will still be transfers done by non-transfer dedicated teams um, but what I would actively encourage you to do is to proactively seek out with your regional deaneries what the next steps and solution is because if there's not a robust plan in place, I, I do worry about skill fade. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that we've got out in front of uh, with the Wales Deanery uh, specifically for this reason, because um, as much as uh, I want to be everywhere um, at every time of day, that's not possible. Uh, and, 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 and as trainees and as adult learners, you've you got you to look for it um, in order to get that exposure. But that, that's, it, it's, it's more about you lobbying for exposure rather than uh, that, then it getting handed to you. But it's a great space to be. Great, thank you very much, Mike. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, Gareth.